Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. And welcome to the Public Health Power Hour. My name is Sandy Mullen, and I'm a Senior Vice President at Vital Strategies, a global public health organization. First, in case your social media isn't blowing up, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson was confirmed today to be the first Black woman to serve on the United States Supreme Court. History was made today, and many of us are rejoicing at this. So turning to our show, the Public Health Power Hour is a live discussion show about public health on Twitter spaces. It's recorded as a podcast and found on your favorite podcast platforms like Apple or Spotify. Vital Strategies is working to reimagine public health. That means everything that surrounds us, the built and natural environment, the food we buy, the water we drink, the policies that govern all of us are connected to and make good health possible or not. In the wake of millions of deaths from COVID-19 with economies shattered and too many lives impacted, we now have so much more to do to protect people's health. Public health can be better, bolder, and stronger, and this year, Vital Strategies is dedicating the Power Hour to discussions with experts and advocates to think about the how, helping to paint a picture of the future by asking a series of what-if questions. Today, we are centering our discussion on women and turn our lens toward leadership within global health. According to a 2019 WHO report, delivered by women, led by men, 70% of the global health and social care workforce are women, but the public health field is led by men. We are asking our panelists today how public health might be different if organizations and initiatives were led by women. What happens when women have equal power in public health decision-making? And when we do lead, are we adopting traditional male models of leadership? We will also discuss how COVID-19 has changed the leadership landscape and how women can prepare to be leaders in public health. We've been taking questions on Twitter all week and have incorporated them into today's discussion. Afterwards, or even during, send us your feedback, such as ideas for future episodes or thoughts and questions to powerhour at vitalstrategies.org. Okay, before we dive into our main topic, I'd like to introduce our three guests by inviting them to share any news article or show or anything else that caught their eye, anything in the news that caught their eye this week. It could be about this topic or not. So first, I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Magda Rabalo. Dr. Rabalo is the Global Managing Director of Women in Global Health. 
She's also the co-founder and president of the Institute for Global Health and Development, a private nonprofit foundation aimed at advancing women's leadership in global health. Welcome, Magda. Is there an article you'd like to bring the attention of our audience to? Thank you, Sandra. Um, yes, I actually have three articles. One is the just-launched Women in Global Health Pay Women Policy Report, which highlights the fact that um, women in the health sector are paid 23% less than their male counterparts. And uh, despite the fact that they represent 70% of the health workforce, and their work contributes almost um, 5% to global GDP, yet about 50% of this work is unrecognized or unpaid. My second news uh, that struck me this week is the um, Global Health 5050 report about the boards, uh, where it is um, shockingly reported that out of 2,000 board sets worldwide uh, in global health, just 17 board seats, merely 1%, are held by women from low-income countries. And then finally, I want to applaud the fact that Portugal in the global north and Mozambique in the global south have this week or last week nominated uh, gender parity governments. So these are my highlights uh, for uh, starting this conversation. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you so much. Uh, that is shocking, your percentage of women uh, from LMIC sitting on board chairs. And so that's something that I hope that we can further interrogate as this discussion goes forward. Thank you so much. Next, hello to Kathleen Sherwin. Kathleen has been serving as interim president and chief officer at Women Deliver. Kathleen previously served as Women Deliver's chief operating officer and senior advisor, joining the organization in 2017. She is about to step down, but as her board chair said, Kathleen has stepped up and stepped back to lead Women Deliver to become a more equitable and inclusive organization. Welcome, Kathleen. What article caught your eye this week? Thank you. Um, thanks so much for the kind comment. Well, I'm sitting in New York today, so I thought I'd talk a little bit about the U.S. Something on uh, my mind is uh, on Tuesday, it was the 12th anniversary of the Affordable Care Act. And as we advocate at Women Deliver for UHC, this is always on my mind. Um, the 12th anniversary, 31 million Americans um, have um, received insurance, have been able to get affordable health insurance since this was enacted 12 years ago. And this week, uh, the government closed a major loophole so that um, financial assistance and coverage could be made um, for families. So it closed a major loophole um, and 5 million more families in the U.S. will now have access to affordable health care coverage. So that's absolutely top of mind. As we talk about COVID later today, you know, in the U.S., um, through this uh, ACA Act, um, over 14 million people were able to get access to care during COVID. So just really important, obviously, UHC globally at large, but here in the U.S., um, a great week uh, for health care. Indeed. Thank you so much for sharing that good news, Kathleen. Uh, that's a great step forward for the uninsured or people who were un uninsured. 
So next we have Noeline Nabdulivu. Noeline is a feminist activist, educator, and community organizer working for socioeconomic, ecological, and climate justice, sexual rights, and gender justice in the Pacific, and, and has been working globally for over 35 years in public health. She's currently the executive director of DIVA, which stands for Diverse Voices and Action for Equality. Welcome, Noeline. We'd love to hear what you'd like to share with the audience. Thanks so much, um, Sandra. And for me, I guess, um, coming from a climate frontline um, society in, in Fiji and in the Pacific, it's related to the IPCC report um, that's just out on climate change mitigation. Um, but more specifically and linked to that launch is um, there's been really the largest scientist-led disobedience campaign this week. There's over a thousand scientists from, I think, over 25 countries that are um, involved in nonviolent action, and it's growing every day now. Um, and, and that's astonishing. Um, for example, the Shell headquarters in London was pasted with academic papers, like blow-ups of them on the walls. Um, fake oil was thrown at the building entrance. The company was blocked from opening. And in Australia, there's a 45-year-long um, career ecologist um, who locked himself down on a major highway to disrupt oil um, tankers. And I think it's really um, a moment, you know, when, as the UN Secretary-General uh, Secretary said at the launch of, of this groundbreaking report, that you know, we think about climate activists as being the radicals, but really the dangerous radicals are those companies that are increasing the production of um, fossil fuels. Um, and he basically said, you know, in, in unusually strong language for a secretary general that fossil fuels infrastructure, um, to be investing in it now is really moral and economic madness. And um, for me, that really links to what we're talking about today is, you know, what is the state of not just the health of individuals, um, but communities and societies and our ecosphere um, as a whole. So that's really in my mind all the time, but particularly this week. Thanks. Thank you so much. That is astonishing to hear that many scientists getting involved and good to hear about that civil dis disobedience going on. Thank you for sharing that. So I, I'll share something that I actually listened to in, in the past week, and it's a, it's a podcast that occurred a few months ago, I think, but I'm just catching up. Um, and it's really more to talk about the ethos and values of leadership, since this is part of the topic that we're discussing today. Um, and I'm going to share a couple of quotes from uh, Stacey Abrams, who is a political activist that um, many of us, uh, for many of us, is a political hero because uh, arguably her voter registration work helped to get Joe Biden to be, become president in the United States. But I just want to read a couple of things that she said. First, she had a great line about transparency, a value that many organizations and leaders hold up as important, but only give lip service to. Quote, honesty is telling the truth, she said. And quote, transparency is telling the truth before you have to. And she used this as a way to talk about how uh, leaders can anticipate and grapple with problems before they get ahead of us, as well as build trust. The second thing she said that stood out for me is about fear. Self-doubt, she said, is often driven by fear. And she continued, I believe in the legitimacy of fear. Women are especially exhorted to be fearless, and that is dumb advice. Fears are real and salient. She advises us to confront the fear, to not ignore it, investigate the roots of it, and how it can be navigated and leveraged. So for those of us who are leaders in public health, I think that we can uh, certainly resonate with uh, some of that advice, and uh, as we have 
uh, had to navigate with with here and and to try to push for more transparency in whatever spaces that we occupied. So, with those words of wisdom from Stacey Abrams and for for all of the from all of our speakers today who called out some very interesting articles, let's get into our discussion. So, our topic this week is what if global health was led by women? And if the conversation goes as we hope it will, we're hoping that we'll cover what are the data and evidence around women's leadership and its impact, what policies and programs have we seen work to advance women's leadership in public health, and that we should accelerate or invest in, and what should our least listeners look for in their work environments towards growing leadership roles for women. So Magda, perhaps I could first turn to you. A Women in Global Health report, and I think you just referenced this, estimates that women comprise 70% of the global workforce, but only 25% are in leadership. And you mentioned that 17% number for board composition. The, the key issues your report identified is that women tend to participate in lower paid jobs that don't track their leadership. Are there specific sources or reasons for this inequity that you want to identify? Um, yes, uh, Sandra. Um, I believe the uh, power disparities and um, underrepresentation of women in positions of influence and uh, decision making um, are uh, a reflection of um, centuries of uh, power asymmetries, which are deeply um, rooted into our uh, traditional and cultural, religious uh, beliefs in our societies. Uh, and these have been uh, transported from generation to generation until uh, our uh, uh, days of 2022. Uh, societies across the world um, have been, despite the fact that uh, history can track back um, Women that have been fearless, courageous, uh, demonstrate leadership. We have uh, kingdoms that have been led uh, by women in many parts of the world. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, history also uh, teaches us that uh, traditions have relegated women to um, positions of lower status where uh, they uh, have become dependent on their husbands, uh, their uh, older brother uh, to make decisions about their lives, their health status, how many children they should have, and just as what is reflected into uh, the uh, global health workforce where the pipeline is uh, full of women, uh, brilliant scientists, professionals, but uh, either the pipeline is uh, leaking or uh, stuck, uh, women can't progress to positions of leadership. So the root cause of this lack of democracy uh, within the global health uh, ecosystem is uh, rooted into traditional beliefs, religion, cultural um, perceptions and practices uh, that continue to uh, shape the way women see themselves, men see women in society overall, uh, discriminates against uh, against women. I'm, I'm sure, thank you so much for that. I'm sure our other uh, panelists will have thoughts about the root causes of that. And I'm sure that uh, 
you'll all uh, be able to just chime in on that um, response that Magda just gave. But but Kathleen, let me just ask you uh, another question that's related, uh, and um, and you can feel free to comment on what Magda's response as well. Uh, so there are about five percent of women in positions of leadership in global international health organizations. Uh, uh, WHO, COVID boards, international government organizations. How did this impact the COVID-19 response? And what was the role of women, uh, I guess, in the pandemic? And is why is that important for us to, to think about and, and focus on? Great. Thanks for that. And I'm going to come back to Magda's point and root, root causes in a moment. I mean, first, let's just zoom out a bit. I mean, let's talk about just women in leadership roles, period, before we even talk about you know, health. I mean, we have a long history um, and Magda references of, of impact of women's leadership. This is not just about equity. This is about addressing crises with better health outcomes. Um, you know, peace agreements are 35% more likely to last at least 15 years when women leaders are engaged. When you increase women's leadership in agriculture and access to land, crops yield 20 to 30% more. When you women hold leadership positions in their companies at the private sector level, they're 21% more likely to outperform averages. So we see this over and over again, that women in leadership roles, um, you see healthier, wealthier, and more prosperous economies. And women in leadership positions are also more likely to directly respond to the concerns of their community. Um, they allocate funds towards education, health, uh, nutrition. Um, they prioritize the needs of women and children in their communities. Um, and that's really important. You know, the number of women leaders in global health have, have actually only increased 2% in the past decade, 2%. Um, and women's leadership in health is really much more than just a question of equity. It really um, will help us more effectively address health crises such as COVID. So back to your first question on COVID and this 5%, 85% of, of now what is 115 COVID task force and committees, the majority of them, 85% of them, have mostly male leadership and membership. Um, and you know what we've seen as countries and states with women as leaders have fewer cases of COVID um, and death. And female leaders in general have done better in the COVID response and recovery. There's been a lot of media attention on this, in, in especially in the earlier days of the pandemic, whether that was um, Ardern in New Zealand or Merkel in Germany or when in Thailand. Um, there was some research uh, produced earlier this year from the University of Liverpool, um, a paper called Leading the Fight Against the Pandemic, Does Gender Really Matter? And there was two reasons the report cited um, that women um, thrive in these uh, health leadership challenges. The first is um, women recognize and assess risk differently. Um, and so women leaders in COVID were more risk conscious regarding their constituents. So how they prioritized um, the lives of those in their community. And the second was leadership style. Um, women uh, prefer um, a flatter, more democratic management structure. They prioritize really clear communications. And this really allowed um, states and regions to be more agile in addressing COVID. So, you know, the question is like, why pay attention to this? I mean, it's obviously a question of equity, but it's really much more. I mean, the bottom line is a key component of our health systems and the pandemic recovery is a strong health and care workforce. And Magda starts at the beginning. Women are 70% of the global health workforce. 
Um, they make up 90% of all nursing and midwifery workforce. And women in health um, deliver uh, care to 5 billion people every year. So this is incredibly important. And there's just so many, so many barriers. I think some of the root causes is obviously just recent working conditions. Um, you know, we think about the issues around sexual harassment, discrimination, occupational segregation, and gender pay gap. So I'm sure we'll get into that, but just agree, Magda, there's a number of root causes um, that we can address here. Thank you so much, Kathleen. And 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 just a, a quick comment. Uh, you know, some might look at, well, you know, the, the countries that are led by women had just as many COVID uh, cases or proportionate numbers of deaths and serious illnesses. But I think to your point about the importance of communication uh, and the um, trust building that both occurred during the pandemic and has outlasted it is something that cannot be underestimated. And I think that some of the uh, the leaders that you mentioned, the female leaders that you mentioned, were real masters uh, of, of communication and continuing to engage their public in a trust-building exercise, even if at the end of the day, the case counts are different in, in, in those countries. Um, uh, you know, they, they, if they get worse uh, at the end of the day when the COVID pandemic is all uh, is, is over, which hopefully will happen in the not-too-distant future. So thanks for that. Um, Nolene, can I turn to you uh, to comment on your organization uh, works to address uh, how the burden of unpaid care, domestic and com communal work also inhibits women from advancing. And so it'd be great to hear you comment on that and then have a few more questions uh, for you as this, uh, as this session goes on. Thanks, Sandra. Um, I mean, so, you know, as um, as we've just heard and um, in the Pacific, we've got double the global rates of violence against women and girls. So I really want to touch on that before I talk about unpaid care work and really the linkage there. Um, even at rates of, you know, one in three, that's massive globally, right? But at um, two of three women um, who've in, uh, experienced intimate partner violence, it, it, it literally is um, a health crisis, a social crisis, and and I would say a patriarchal daily assault on 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 women's bodies. So, if two in three women in Fiji have you know experienced physical or sexual violence, and that's just I'm speaking from the place in you know where I work, um, and one in five women experiencing sexual harassment in a workplace, one in three women have experienced physical or sexual violence from a man who's not their partner. So all of these things, the the question of leadership becomes almost moot. You know, in this kind of I don't know, patriarchal, toxic masculinity setting, because how do you aspire to lead? How do you sustain um, the, you know, the, the joy in leadership that we require, you know, in order to do all of this serious work when your rights to bodily autonomy and integrity, you know, your decision-making ability are compromised so, you know, so severely. And if you're fending off daily violence yourself in your own household, um, and when the state and the family, religious and kinship networks and, and you know, many others you encounter through your day provide excuses or they help men to abrogate their responsibility. So like we've had convicted rapists, for example, cleared to pay on, um, play on a warden's rugby team only one year into their sentences. It's shocking that that should even be considered okay. But in a patriarchal environment, um, these decisions happen by both state and society. And so which women are going to push into this formal leadership space, you know, whatever their capabilities, 
even whatever their resources, um, without really serious concerns about how they do it. Then when you combine that with the rates of women's unpaid care, domestic and communal work, in my own situation, it's two to three times the work um, burden um, of women to men. So, um, it, you know, we found that in three rural studies, um, we know the evidence around it. And so we have to be cl much clearer to policymakers um, both where I am, but also globally, that if what we're really about is leadership of women and gender non-binary people to be a reality, then we have to do the work as prevention of violence against women and girls as a top priority. And we have to also do the reform policy on decent work, on social floor, on social protection and social infrastructure. And that's not just about childcare issues, you know, for women leaders, that's about you know, how are we going to keep ourselves um, safe all the way through our life course, all those um, um, teenage and, and uh, the intervention techniques that we require all the way through our life, um, our life course thing. Yeah, I can, I can feel a lot of people nodding their heads in uh, shock when you mentioned uh, the bit about the rugby players and, yes. uh, and, and also uh, saying a lot of amens when you, uh, when you talked about how we should really think about moving forward um, in terms of some of the root causes that you've identified. So thank you so much for that very thoughtful uh, response. Um, Magda, I'd love to turn back to you and uh, ask you, because we're now thinking about some policy solutions or, or policy approaches. And do you have examples of specific programs where or when women have led and found improved impact? Uh, Kathleen mentioned a few earlier, but I'm wondering if from your experience, you either have direct uh, familiarity with any or if you know of any, so that when we're reimagining, if, if you will, uh, enabling environments and policies around public health that promote leadership, we'll have a better sense of what they might look like. Um, without um, uh, being uh, through... Um, formal in assessing the um, the tenure of the first woman who led WHO, uh, Gro Harlan Brundtland in 1998, I uh, can really relate to the major and courageous decisions uh, she made when she was um, uh, the leader of WHO when we all uh, remember the Treaty on Tobacco Control, for example, the WHO Convention on Tobacco Control, she had the courage to uh, face uh, tobacco industry and come up with a, a framework, uh, of course, with the support of member states to, 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 to challenge one of the dreadful um, um, problems of uh, our time. But we have also seen, uh, if I go back to Africa and I think of Liberia with um, the, the, the Madame uh, Ellen Sirleaf uh, when she was uh, president of uh, Liberia. The structural institutional changes that she instituted. Uh, I think we have um, examples of when women lead, uh, the difference we see in terms of how they conduct societies into a more stable and more peaceful uh, turn into dialogue and uh, build the trust that is needed for uh, societies to thrive and women to uh, be able to um, uh, operate uh, as the, uh, the, the the building blocks and also uh, the backbones of uh, societies. When women uh, lead, uh, and Kathleen has uh, 
um, eloquently uh, indicated the different areas where uh, we have good examples of women leadership in the areas of agriculture, uh, health and others. Uh, we see a difference because women tend to uh, be uh, more um, prone to uh, listening to uh, all uh, the voices and uh, uh, measure and balance risks in order to uh, include uh, different uh, perspectives uh, in uh, decision making. Uh, I think um, as we uh, move towards, uh, um, I would not say more democratic societies because we see democracy being uh, failing in many parts of the world, uh, but that the lessons we have learn uh, with democracy, uh, as imperfect as it is, uh, it, it needs to be um, used and applied uh, for uh, inclusive societies where diversity and equity, including women, uh, is uh, considered. Women are uh, the face of poverty, and poverty is one of the uh, main drivers uh, contributing to the inequity in the balance of power that women uh, are facing uh, currently. Thank you so much, Magda. And for those who are uh, maybe feeling a bit skeptical on this call that we think all women leaders are bound to be better than male leaders or male leaders are bound to be bad by virtue of their, them being male. Um, of course, we're not saying that. <laughs> we, we know that we obviously need um, systems of democracy and accountability, um, etc., et, et uh, to uh, make sure that people in whatever positions of power are holding um, power responsibly. Um, but I think that we're really trying to address where we think that there are uh, uh, whether it's socialized traits or practices that women leaders have adopted that um, I think put them in good stead in the ways that our speakers are addressing today and have, has, have achieved really um, good results. So um, let me turn the, the conversation back to uh, Kathleen to hear a little bit more about what policies and programs have really helped to advance women's uh, leadership globally, if you could maybe speak to that a little bit more about that. Sure. No, thanks. I want to pick up something that Nolene said earlier. I mean, I think there's two things that sort of come, come to mind. I mean, I think the first is promoting uh, progressive laws and repealing discriminatory laws that prevent women from taking up leadership positions. I mean, this includes a range of aspects, including safeguarding, SRHR, um, you know, obviously when girls and women have full control over their body and their choices, um, if and when to have children, they can live to their full potential. So I think first is promoting progressive laws. The second is funding feminist organizations and movements. They play such a vital role in shaping global health policy, and local policy, feminist activists and organizations, and they're constantly under attack by um, as Magda just said, a growing anti-gender, anti-fill-in-the-blank, you know, sort of forces. Um, and they're so chronically under-resourced. You know, women's rights organizations and movements um, get less than 1% of official development assistance, ODA assistance, committed for gender equality every year. So there's just very little funding to promote those who are on the front line, um, uh, really um, uh, the feminist activists and, and, and women rights leaders um, are just not getting the resourcing that they need. So that those are two sort of from a policy perspective, two things that we um, at Women Deliver champion. I know a lot of the folks listening in today 
um, you know, are, are earlier in their career. And, and just want to say, you know, sort of zooming in a little bit, you know, just other strategies um, and policies and programs. I mean, I think when you're like thinking about sort of the workplace, I mean, things that we think about is how do you create a more inclusive and supportive culture and process and system um, when you're when you're thinking about this issue? And that goes from everything from, um, you know, engaging girls in STEM, um, looking at targeted campaigns to break stereotypes, um, looking at uh, targets and quotas to achieve gender parity, uh, equal and family-friendly policies and frameworks. And of course, um, as you said earlier, Sandra, inclusion of boys and men in engagement um, and training on this issue. So really a focus on inclusive and supporting cultures, uh, really promoting gender transformative policies, and then finally just working with partners to scale impact on gender equality. So those are just some very practical, I think, strategies, you know, kind of in the workplace itself. That's wonderful. And we're going to talk a little bit more about um, ideas and for the younger women in this conversation or listening to this conversation about what they can think about and do more about in their in their careers to advance to leadership positions. Um, Noeline, I want to turn back to you. I love the expression you used in a keynote speech you gave a couple of years ago about the, quote, need to peel back the layers of patriarchy, end quote. How do we ensure we work to advance inclusive women's leadership? And how do, how do women from the global South find their, as you would say, their places in Northern spaces, like decision-making uh, places like New York or Geneva for international global health organizations, for example? How do we help women leaders from the global South speak from their vantage point and perspectives uh, as part of this discussion. Um, thanks, Sandra. If you don't mind, I'll just very quickly just um, highlight three kind of policy measures as well. Just one at national level um, in Fiji is the Fiji National Action Plan to Prevent Violence Against Women. And the reason why I just wanted to kind of bring attention to that is it is about the women's leadership within that set of work that has been, you know, I think, um, what is helping it to be kind of groundbreaking work. So it's one of only three in the world. It was put forward by, you know, kind of by a feminist minister for women. Um, and it's cross-ministerial. So you have representation from the Ministry for Health, Education, Social Services, but it also works with 13 sectors for five years. And that includes everyone from military, police, judiciary, religious leaders, but also like LGBTQI groups, sex workers, community, you know, community leaders, like young feminists, and, and the reason why is we have a technical group that is made up of not just the Ministry for Women, but also ourselves from the feminist movement um, and, and others from, um, from uh, civic sector and others. So I think it's really important to think about the ways that we can do leadership if we're prepared to put in the difficult, you know, it's, it's not easy to do that kind of work over five years and to negotiate every step along the way to make sure that we get both gender equity and, and specific outputs on um, prevention of violence against women and girls, but but it's possible as long as we're prepared to to include feminist groups and others into that. So that's just one. And the second point I wanted to raise is it's also about those like you know the Secretary General of the UN um, stating as a top priority that gender parity has to be you know in place in the UN itself by 2026. I mean we need to see those examples where where the rubber's hitting the road and we're really trying to you know, to, 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 to get the, those wins in place, but also measure that. 
think about the accountability um, of how we measure that along the way. Um, there's also, and I have to say this, the cleanup of women EDs um, in places like Oxfam International and Can International that have been through some real, um, you know, some awful um, scandals and, and, and predatory behavior by male workers and, and that they have come in and really used their power to be able to transform um, an, uh, an organization. Um, so, so that's really important to also say that. And the last one I'd add on this is Pacific Gender Technical Working Group is an example where we're working with um, uh, development sector. There are, there are representatives from development sector and the Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat that serves 22 island states and territories. And there are feminist and civil society organizations who are co um, co-convening that space. And we meet regularly um, to make sure that we're talking about issues of leadership in all of these areas, including public health. And I don't think we change it unless we have that consistent sets of work with each other, um, where, where we're putting forward programs across non-traditional partnerships, and we're making sure that we build those over time. Um, and then I would say that kind of answers, you know, goes towards an answer that, you know, that you're asking about what do we do, you know, to make it. I, I think if we're going to reimagine um, leadership um, of women, you know, on the one hand, often governments will, will talk about, say, regional initiatives. But when the rubber hits the road, um, then sometimes it's the narrative, but we don't actually get those. And I, and I feel like in our region, for instance, that some of those gaps um, that we see in, in how we move these issues on public health across 22 island states and territories, we need to think about what are the gaps and obstacles, and we need to be very clear on how we're going to work on those almost as part of a social movement campaign. And, and that's been done in some countries like Uruguay and others when they were working specifically on unpaid care and domestic work, you know, is, is looking at it as a national campaign, looking at it as a regional responsibility to get all of the governments on side, but also to get civil society working with them on an inside government, outside government approach. So I think that's really important. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. Um, does anybody want to comment on, uh, do, do Magda or Kathleen, do you want to comment on uh, what Noeline just discussed? Yes, I do. Um, I think um, I want to make a couple of points. Number one is uh, this is not going to be uh, a woman's battle alone. Uh, it, it has to be public-private, women, men, boys and girls. We need to collectively join forces if we are going to change uh, the, the, the status quo. Because currently, uh, men are leading, they are holding leadership positions. All the policies and uh, uh, instruments we are uh, producing or suggesting that be produced and talking about will not be implemented and will not become effective if men are are not really coming on board as uh, partners. But it's also important that women should not feel guilty uh, by highlighting um, important um, uh, road uh, progress that is made by uh, women leaders. I think uh, that doesn't mean that we are sidelining men. It is um, upfront to recognize that we can only do this uh, collectively, uh, hand in hand with men, but we really need uh, to see the men who 
are willing to champion uh, the cause of gender equity. Otherwise, it will take um, uh, several uh, centuries uh, in a more pessimistic uh, perspective uh, for us to reach um, the goal that we are aspiring to. Um, you mentioned the issue of uh, the younger generation, I think, uh, and also the um, uh, uh, the prospect of seeing uh, women from the global south um, rising to uh, senior positions of leadership in uh, global north uh, and international organizations. I think we definitely need that social mobility um, that will bring diversity and inclusive uh, movements on the gender equity space. And when I talk about uh, inclusion, uh, I want to just um, uh, uh, mention an interesting uh, quote I found, uh, which says, diversity is to invite people to the party. Inclusion is to invite people to dance. So we really need to get to a point where uh, women are invited to dance and move away from the rhetoric of the past um, 50 years or so um, about uh, changing policies and changing instruments that uh, uh, are not um, showing uh, that level of progress that needs to be uh, to be achieved. And we need intergenerational equity as well. Uh, it should not be all, only old men um, in positions of leadership. Uh, when we talk about gender equity, we are also looking into young women with talents, uh, capacities, and competences to be in positions of leadership. So uh, the intergenerational equity uh, is brought about by providing equal opportunities. When we talk about inclusiveness, we are looking into uh, giving women um, equal salaries, equal opportunities, opening career perspectives, which very often don't exist, or unless you are subject to sexual harassment, it is difficult for you to move up the ladder in international organizations and um, reach the position that you deserve in terms of your of your career perspectives. So the enabling environment is uh, made up of the policies and the instruments, but Indeed, we need to find those men who are sitting and holding power uh, uh, in uh, positions of leadership to be willing uh, and able, determined to make the changes and affect the policies we are talking about. Thank you. Over. No, that's great, Magda. And, and you know, as, as a leader in our organization, Vital Strategies, I feel very strongly about uh, really trying to bring in younger people and to help them to grow up that grow that career ladder and to uh, move into more and more positions of responsibility and authority and I hope that uh, that is a, I, I'm sure that is a commitment that, that those of us in this conversation share and many who are listening in as well um, so thank you so much for that perspective uh, before I get to the sort of career part of this discussion um, I just want to make sure that uh, that uh, Kathleen and Noeline uh, don't have an, a comment on the conversation so far. Feel free to jump in. Sure. Either of you. Well, I'm so glad, uh, Manga, you brought up uh, the point around um, youth engagement and youth leadership. I mean, as we always say, you know, they are not the future leaders. They are leading now. And they need to be absolutely part um, of these global leadership conversations. I mean, I think centering 
youth and women's leadership, um, whether it's in generating data to inform policies and programs in the global health and cross sector. We need to be resourcing um, the youth leaders of our time. It's not just um, having a seat at the table, it's resourcing them to be able to thrive um, at those tables. Um, and just the last point, I mean, just coming from an IGO, INGO, and Nolene, um, you mentioned this earlier, you know, obviously coming from a global North organization, we need to be using our privilege and positional power to transform these global spaces, um, you know, to be opening them up to ensuring that um, those from lower middle income countries have the mic, um, that they're well resourced, that they're accessible, um, and uh, that we're ensuring that policy is informed by those who are most impacted by these decisions. So we have such a, um, you know, we have such a privilege, but we need to use it um, to be able to transform these spaces. So I, I really add those two points before you we move on to careers. If, if people could do emojis, they'd be doing a 100% emoji uh, right now, what you just said, mm -hmm. I think, Kathleen, thank you. Um, so maybe I could, in the last about 15 minutes, or let's call it 12 minutes before the wrap-up, um, starting with you, Noeline, I'd love you to share with our listeners what support, like key support you got to get to where you are today so that they can sort of, hear, whether it was a mentor, whether it was uh, a, a course of study that you took, whether it was just happenstance, and uh, or, or tell us tell us how you got to where you are. Thanks. I mean, I, I would say, you know, it, it's having um, women around me who were, you know, wonderful, both activists, practical, practical activists, um, and incredible um, analytical thinkers. Because I think one of the things that we have to encourage, you know, of ourselves as, um, you know, particularly women from the majority South, but all of us as, as women, when we're thinking through you know, any issues of leadership in any kind of space or processes is um, there are things that we have to know about the system in order to be able to change it. And that takes years of work to build up that body of, you know, of praxis. And that means that, you know, for instance, concrete examples, you know, we have to think about, you know, not just international, you know, we're talking a lot about feminist foreign policy and we have to do that. It's incredibly important to think about that, you know, just think about issues like vaccine equity and um, and other issues we're dealing with right now. But we have to also think about the reimagining of the state, you know, feminist domestic policy. We've seen a hollowing out of state um, over, over decades and feminists have been doing this work for decades on how do you recuperate the development state? What are some of the specific things that we have to do in terms of, you know, in terms of policy reimagining and how, how do we how do we help ourselves and and whatever our gender um, to risk some political capital, you know, on work to recuperate the state? How do we do that so that um, so that people feel like they can do more than just reform? That we can work, you know, we speak the language of gender responsive and transformative policy, but we have to be able to put that into into practice, and that takes both analytical skill, but it also takes relationality. It means adaptive leadership. It means those who are able to move into different rooms and different processes from the local to the national, to the regional, to the global and back. Um, and I think that requires having a set of people around us of whatever gender who are willing to share their knowledge and experience to do some of that skill transfer with each other um, and, and, and do it in the long term. No, it's not about age. Um, and we know that it's about are you able to access those skills and 
um, and knowledge that you require in order to move these really difficult, sensitive sets of work. Um, so to me, that's the most helpful thing for me, and I would say for many others, thank you. That's a beautifully comprehensive uh, answer instead of suggestions. Thank you so much for that. Um, can I ask uh, Kathleen, how about you to reflect on what it was in your life that enabled you to move in the direction that you have? Was it a mentor? Was it mentors? Uh, tell us how you got here. Definitely not a path. Um, there's a zigzag, and I think that's lesson one, right? Um, I, I still don't know what I'm going to do uh, when I grow up. Um, I think, no, but to your, to your question, I think for me, at least it was always having, um, it was the, it was the folks that I was reporting to. It was my uh, managers or supervisors, whatever the word that you want to use. Um, it, it was less for me selecting the organization in my earlier career, but who were the people that I was going to be working and learning from and, and, and especially early on and, you know, finding leaders that understand that most of leadership, I mean, I'm maybe the newest um, amongst our speakers in terms of being in a formal leadership role. And, and what I've learned is, um, especially as being CEO, um, that it's really not making decisions. Uh, most of my time um, is really listening. Um, it's, 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 you know, um, empathy. It's removing barriers so that my team can be successful. Um, it's really spotlighting their talents um, and providing opportunities for folks to learn and to grow. So, you know, for me, it was having managers that um, led in that way um, and really allowed me to explore and to learn, to fail, um, and to be there to be able to support um, my own journey. And I just think, you know, as those who are, you know, listening in or thinking about their own career journey, like what, how do you find that? I mean, I think, you know, part of it is also, you know, when you're doing your research, I think in organizations, who are the leaders of the organization? Take a look. Who, who are the boards? Who are the funders? Who's the senior management team? Um, look at the policies. Are they family friendly? Look at the benefits. Is there transparency in pay? I mean, none of these are going to give you the singular answer, but you know, look first on who are you going to be working with? What does that team look like? What does that leader look like? And then also take a zoom out and look at who are the leaders of that organization? Do you see um, that equity and gender? Um, who do you see on the boards? Who are their funders? I think um, those are all really important aspects. Fantastic, fantastic advice. Uh, and uh, I, I think certainly looking at leadership, looking at board composition, and looking at uh, who 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 the champions are within an organization uh, of people's growth uh, is critically important. Thank you so much. And Magda, I'm sure you have some words of wisdom for our colleagues as well. Um, yes, and I would uh, bring uh, some context uh, here for um, systems like in the Global South where you don't uh, necessarily have the opportunity or even the um, uh, capacity to assess um, some of the uh, important elements mentioned by Kathleen. Uh, but um, for me, uh, what was important was uh, both uh, men and women uh, throughout my career who have uh, opened doors and given me opportunities. And I must say, sometimes you don't realize this is going to be your great opportunity uh, unless you also trust yourself 
and have uh, clear milestones for your life and know what you want to achieve, where you want to be, the things you want to do. It's not straightforward, particularly when you don't have uh, that much experience in your career, when you don't have the opportunities to uh, scan the world and understand what it looks like out there. So um, talking to my fellow uh, women from Global South, I know many of us uh, live in uh, uh, what I would call remote areas compared to uh, the, the, the global north, even if you might be uh, in a capital city of a country. Uh, but trust yourself, define your ambitions and look around for men and women who are willing and ready, honestly, to give you a hand, uh, open opportunities for you and grab them. Uh, do your, your homework uh, and then uh, the sky will be the limit. Um, that's um, what I would uh, I would um, advise. Great optimistic uh, uh, comment to uh, to start to begin our ending on. Um, we have a few couple more minutes. Uh, just wondering if any of the speakers want to comment on something that either hasn't already been mentioned or um, something that you've been dying to say that you haven't had time to say. So I'll give the floor to whoever wants to chime in. I'll maybe just say one last thing, if that's okay, Sandra. Of and course. It would be that, um, you know, many of the interventions, and I find this on um, on issues of health, but also on um, economics and and on particularly on climate justice that we're working on right now, um, LGBTQI rights, all of it is that often those who maybe have the capacity and the opportunity to be able to be those, you know, transforming um, elements um, on policy and on practice. Sometimes we work to the lowest common denominator rather than, you know, the really kind of ambitious sets of work. And that can be because we're worried, you know, that, that you know, we're, we're going to stop other longer term sets of work from going forward. Um, but I think if we don't think about those levers uh, as levers, you know, that those things that we think are really hard to work on in hum in, um, in human rights and in sexual and reproductive health and rights or in um, sexual orientation, gender identity and expression and sex characteristics as well, you know, the work around intersex, if we don't look at those and work through them, then they stop us from being able to do that transformative um, sets of work that really touch on heteropatriarchy, that touch on, you know, neoliberal capitalism, that kind of find us where we are right now on these, you know, these integrated crises that we're facing from the individual to the global. And I think we do have to be brave. We do have to think about the ways that we can take this forward because um, I, I, we, we all know, you know, we've got 200 species a day that are going extinct. We have um, so many issues that are happening around the world. We know we have to get off um, fossil fuel, but this kind of cognitive dissonance that we find is we've got to be able to move um, further than we are right now and much, much faster. And that takes leadership. So it requires us finding new ways. I think we can't think about reform all of the time now. And we've got to stop the gatekeepers from, from stopping us from getting where we need to go on public health and on all the other issues for, for justice on all territories. Um, thank you. Yeah, amen. Thank you. That was uh, a, a great wrap-up uh, set of comments. So I'm, I'm going to close uh, with a couple minutes, uh, but I want to first thank you, all of our panelists, uh, 
Dr. Rabalo, Kathleen, Kathleen Sherwin, and Noeline Nabu—I'm going to say this properly—Nabulivu um, for this rich and lively discussion. Really, um, a great um, epic discussion on women's leadership in global health. And uh, I, I, I am going to quote Noeline from a um, from that uh, keynote that I watched her give. Uh, that I hope that this conversation inspired all of you to be quote, fierce and prickly, and to sometimes make others uncomfortable as we bring more of our women's uh, leaders' voices uh, into, uh, into rooms that they may not be occupying enough, and that we start to graduate more and more um, women into leadership roles uh, because we're seriously underrepresented. Uh, I also want to thank Steve Hamill, uh, the creator and producer of, uh, of The Power Hour, Christina Honeysett, Nana Sase, Ali Davis, Ramisa Tasneem, and Dane Spenson for all their help with this and all of our Power Hour productions. If you enjoyed our conversation, would like to share it, look for the Public Health Power Hour podcast on your favorite platform like Apple or Spotify. And don't forget to subscribe to receive notifications on future episodes. Thank you all very much to our speakers and thank you all for joining and we'll see you soon. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at Vital Strat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.